Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Appropriate Omnivore on the new Green Earth Radio. We have a great show today. My guest today is Graham Merriweather, who directed the documentary American Meat and started the organization Leave It Better. I'll also be letting you know what to see, read, and eat. But first, let's go to the appetizers and hear what happened this past week in the world of real food. The Center for Science in the Public Interest says several types of cancer are linked to a chemical in caramel coloring found in soda pops, such as Coke and Pepsi. Now, personally, I'm not much into recommending drinking soda pops. Um, if I do, I suggest doing it in moderation and you know, getting the ones which have cane sugar. But, of course, cane sugar, that is still a processed food. I mean, the best way is if you can find a recipe actually to make your own soda pop and use something uh, such as uh, an evaporated cane sugar such as Sucanat or Rapidura, those are the best ways to make it. But um, certainly this is news where with the caramel coloring, it shows that, you know, there's other things that we didn't know about from just, you know, not just the high fructose corn syrup or even the cane sugar. And so certainly it's a reason to stay away from, you know, the big ones like Coke and Pepsi. And if any, you should go for the smaller ones. Seven L.A. chefs are working together to protest California's ban on foie gras. They argue that ducks naturally overeat to fatten up for migration, and ducks don't have a gag reflex, so the tubes used to feed them, it's not as painful as it looks. Now, personally, I agree with uh, these chefs of what they're saying. I mean, it is, um, you know, it's something where, um, to paraphrase Michael Pollan, he says that while foie gras may be cruel, I mean, you know, some of the other things that we don't know about, like what's done for... Uh, to get our bacon and our eggs was done to the pigs, it can be more painful. Um, and I mean, you know, these ducks, they'll actually come forward to get fed the food, unlike what the happens with the pigs and, and the chickens. Uh, the other thing is the whole feeding through the tube. That's a thing that's done here, but there is actually a way that you can have foie gras without using the tube. I mean, there's a chef in Spain that he doesn't use any tube. The ducks just come. So I can't say I support the ban on foie gras, although I do support maybe, you know, certainly some more humane efforts to have it done. And next, a study in the journal Current Microbiology says that weed killers could have a negative effect on the microorganisms found in raw and fermented foods. This is particularly alarming because raw and fermented foods, big things that I recommend, such as raw milk and certainly fermented foods because they're probiotic and have, you know, healthy living cultures in them. And it's pretty scary to see that you know, even these foods can be affected by these you know, GMs by Monsanto. In other news, Dr. Dwight Lundell, a world-renowned heart surgeon, has spoken out saying the cholesterol isn't the cause of heart disease. Lundell says inflammation in the artery wall is the real cause. He adds inflammation occurs when we put toxins in our body that we're not meant to eat. This is great news because so far, as the, you know, the rejection of the lipid hypothesis, there haven't been a lot of you know, actual doctors, medical professionals in it. So certainly to have Dr. Dwight Lundell added to this, this is great, and it only helps the cause. And I think you know, soon we will be hearing more doctors, you know, especially like heart surgeons, talking about how the cholesterol is not the heart cause of heart disease. And, you know, they'll bring up what is the real cause of, you know, processed foods, refined sugars, white flour. And lastly, a study at the University of Missouri has found that BPA could be making people fat. And you know, this is related because we often blame animal products, cholesterol, for making people fat. Um, but, you know, 
we've seen that there's strong evidence that there's other things leading to obesity, such as sugar and white flour. And certainly we've all known how bad BPA is. So that's another reason that we should go without BPA, which in related news, Campbell's Soup has said it will stop its lining its cans with BPA, which this is the first really major company to not use BPA in its cans. The other one is Eden Organics, a much smaller company, but certainly great company. I, I buy them for that reason, that they don't have BPA. And it's wonderful for Campbell. I would like them to also stop using you know these fatty vegetable oils in their soups as well and these sugars. But certainly this is a start, and I hope that I think the other companies will follow. I know Amy's Organics has talked for a while about getting cans without BPA in them. And with Campbell, I think this will you know, bring the news to other companies to get in the game too. And so now for our main course. Today, the issue is pastured meats. This is a topic that's been discussed a big part in our first two episodes. Today, we'll hear firsthand with someone that's visited many of the farms where these pastured meats are raised. And learning about grass-fed beef, this is what took me on my way to become the appropriate omnivore. I've always been into the environment. I've been interested in everything from solar panels to electric cars to recycling, but I never thought much about the impact of what I had to eat and what it had on the earth. Then a friend recommended me the book The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. After reading it, I completely changed my diet. I started purchasing organic produce at the supermarket and looking for pastured meats. Also, when I read it four years ago, I've only become more and more conscious of the food I eat. It just changes more to become more and more strict uh, in some ways you could say, but you know, I, I don't want to go back to how I've eaten before. And this is a big reason I want to do my radio show and blogs, is to let people know that you don't have to give up meat to be environmental. All the charges that meat is damaging to our environment, this relates only to factory farming and not to raising animals truly free range. I also want to make people aware that it's wrong that animal products are bad for you. These claims, again, go back to factory farming to the unsanitary condition the animals live in, and the feed of corn, soy, plus the hormones and antibiotics that they're given. Grass-fed beef, on the other hand, is high in omega-3s and is high in antioxidants such as vitamin E. I can go on saying the reasons that I recommend grass-fed beef or that over that which is corn-fed, but I'd like to have our guest Graham Merriweather share with me his experience seeing the production firsthand. Graham directed the documentary American Meat, which talks about our current industrial system of factory farming and the farms, and then goes to farms across the country that are making the changes. Graham also runs the website Leave It Better, which tells stories of people making a difference to have a positive impact on our environment. So welcome, Graham. I'm really glad that you're able to do my show. Hello. Thanks so much, Aaron. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have you. you know, I thank you for your time because I know the film... American Meat. It's currently in theaters now, so I know you probably have a busy schedule with it playing across the country. Yeah, it's been it's been great. We're we're doing screenings in a lot of different communities, and, and the screenings generally are community based and food based. So we'll have a, a big meal beforehand at a restaurant that sources their food locally. Then we'll screen the film, and then we'll have a, a panel discussion with uh, farmers and chefs and food advocates and uh, veterinarians, farmers, uh, uh, different people re- related to the food movement in in the various communities where we're doing screenings. So, 
so yeah, we've been lucky to to do a bunch of screenings around the country, and and we have a bunch more scheduled. So it's it's been wonderful. Wow, I mean that sounds great. I think that's great to do the whole experience. I mean, of getting to eat the food and learn hand. I mean, to me, that's what films are all about. And especially for documentaries, it's always great when you can, you know, have kind of a thing going out just side the film, then have experts there to learn about it. And I know that um, some of the first ones you actually focused at, focused on were a lot of areas where there's you know, farm communities like places in Iowa and stuff like that, which I thought was pretty amazing to start there instead of the typical like New York or L.A. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we finished the film in, in July of 2011 and we realized that uh, this wasn't a film that we really wanted to submit to film festivals. We actually, we haven't applied to a single film festival with the film. Um you know, it's a film that's really about a movement that's happening in agriculture and, and a changing landscape that's happening uh, with farming in our country. And so we felt like instead of bringing it to sort of the typical red carpet, New York, L.A. type of premiere, uh, it made a lot more sense for us to premiere the film in Virginia at Polyface Farms where we spend most of our time farming. And so we premiered the film for uh, about 1,500 farm families that were there at that uh, that field day where it's at Polyface Farms, and we had wonderful discussions. We had wonderful food. Uh, it was truly a wonderful uh, experience. And then from there, we, we've taken the film and probably done about 75 or 80 screenings primarily in agricultural communities in Iowa and Virginia. Uh, we're actually about to do a screening in Michigan uh, tomorrow night at the Michigan Theater with a wonderful meal at Zingerman's, which is just a fantab- fantabulous, I almost said, a fantastic restaurant that sources their food locally. And uh, So it's been great, and, and we're really focusing on, on getting the film out to the communities that are most impacted by the the film content and we will eventually get out to the to the coasts but we felt like it was important to bring the film to to the heartland of america first and then and then sort of expand out from there i think that's very admirable and certainly polyface farms i mean i think you can't choose a a better place to start than that joel salatin is amazing i mean and that is one of the best uh, organic pastured farms um so that's wonderful right and i know also i've seen you've you've played it like some not film festivals, but, like, there have been a number of, of farming festivals and food festivals where where you've been able to play that. So I think that's good. So now I've seen that you mentioned on Facebook that it will be coming to L.A. in July. Yeah, we're, we're looking at, uh, at doing some screenings um, in L.A. and in all throughout California and also in the Pacific Northwest. We actually haven't set any dates yet, uh, so we're we're in the process of putting that together now. Um, so yeah, we you know we're it's not just about obviously the the heartland of America. Uh, we are going to be doing screenings all across the country, um, and and so obviously there's a lot of amazing things happening in Los Angeles and all through California and all through all through our country with this this type of farming. So. Yeah, we're excited to get out to California, and uh, we're really excited to to do the same things that we're doing here uh, out there. 
Right, because certainly, I mean, there's a number of great pastured farms in California, and there's a lot of it going on, a lot of restaurants, too, so I think California will certainly fit well to it, and I mean, as well as also certainly being the uh, the industry, I think a lot, I know a lot of people will be interested in seeing this film. There's a lot of big environmental movement in, you know, in L.A. and San Francisco. So now I'm interested, what inspired you to originally make this documentary? Well, uh, like you and, and a lot of other people, I read the book The Omnivore's Dilemma, and uh, that was in 2006. And uh, I was working as a documentary journalist at the time, and Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms was very charismatic in the book for me, and so I, I sent him an email in 2006 and said, hey, we'd like to come out to the farm, and we'd like to spend a year filming, and uh, Joel said yes, and so we we went out there and, and we spent the year 2007 filming on Polyface Farms. Uh, it was great. We We got to see all the different seasons and see the different types of agricultural models that Joel has. And uh, it was just an incredible, uh, incredible experience. Uh, and so originally the film was, was just going to be that year and um, sort of the different relationships between the people that work on the farm and the animals and the ecosystem and all that. And then we decided after hearing Joel talk about some of the conventional farmers uh, that we needed to expand our story and we needed to tell the story of how 99% of the farms that raise chickens and hogs and cattle, uh, you know, how they raise animals. And, and so we, we then went out and, and uh, we filmed, we spent a couple of years filming with conventional chicken farmers and hog farmers and cattle raisers. And, you know, we realized that it's, it's not that there's bad agriculture and good agriculture, but you know every farmer is just doing what they need to do to keep their family farm going. And uh, so from there, we realized that then there was this movement happening, and we filmed with a bunch of young people that had started farming in this way, uh, in this sort of grass-based system. And then we uh, filmed with some people that had left their careers to start farming, and then in the end of the film, we we started filming with uh, different distribution models like CSAs and buying clubs and some cool things that are happening at, at Chipotle and Whole Foods uh, that are kind of tangible solutions for people. Uh, so the whole process is about four years, and it was a great great experience. And uh, and you know we we've been thrilled to to now be getting the film out on the out to different communities and, and starting these conversations and, and having some great food centered around the, the story and the stories in the film. I agree with you. Joel Salad, he is very charismatic. I mean he's just he's a wonderful, you know, spokesman for the cause. He definitely um has great things. And yeah, I mean, because I've seen so many interviews of him and every time I see him he just he still just he really amazes me. Um and yeah, and I think that's very interesting. They talk about the end about Chipotle. I mean, that this is a you know this is a major chain that's I mean seems like one of the fastest growing food chains. And I mean, this is one which even at one time McDonald's invested money in, but it has like totally the opposite 
model of McDonald's. Um, and so I guess, do you see other fast food chains uh, starting to follow Chipotle? Well, you know, I don't think anyone else has done that yet, but or, and I don't know that it may well be that there have been some that are trying to do that. But I do think that we will see a shift towards what Chipotle is, is doing, um, largely because of the cost of energy. So as the cost of energy goes up, it'll be uh, it'll be it'll make more sense to have local distribution models. So, you know, with Chipotle, they're starting to locally source some of their meats and vegetables, and I think you'll see more and more of that in the in the years ahead. Um, the other thing is a lot of people think that fattier pigs and these types of things taste better, so you may see that there's sort of a movement towards just taste. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that Chipotle is... is a great restaurant and tastes better than other restaurants. So, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of reasons why I think that the local food movement is going to continue to expand. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting solutions out there. I don't think that, uh, you know, we'll ever have a 100% local uh, agriculture, and I don't think we ever would want to have that. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, if you – had some kind of storm or whatever in an area, uh, then you would be completely out of food if, if the farms got wiped out, and that's not a that's not a really safe situation. So, you know, we always are going to have to have uh, centralized production at some level, but there's no question that an expansion of local production from a one percent of the market to twenty percent or thirty percent or whatever it is of the market would be healthy for everybody. So is that the one percent? I mean, is that an actual um, like? There's kind of actual statistics that only about one percent of the market is sufficient. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of studies that give a lot of percentages. Uh, the one that I've seen that that I that I tend to quote is that one percent. Um, you know, you can come up with a study or a, a survey that will give you a lot of different results, uh, but. Roughly speaking, that's about that's about the market of locally based and grass based food uh, compared to the entire food system. Interesting, because I've kind of I've certainly uh, you know the uh, the proponent the opponents the vegans they'll always try to say well only one percent of uh, you know meat is is efficient so you know I, I hope you only eat meat one uh, percent of the time. Of course, you know I mean. I don't know. The thing is, I mean, if that is true, it's kind of, um, you know, so it's a thing of, um, the thing though is I, I don't understand why they're against, uh, you know, um, more sustainable meat, you know, because the thing is, so if, you know, they're saying that it's less efficient, um, you know, to do more sustainable meat, then that would mean that we're essentially eating less meat if if it becomes more than, you know, 1%, it would, um, but that's, that's interesting to kind of hear it on, you know, that that is true, and that's something that certainly we need to work more on. Um, I know Chipotle has, um, yeah, they've just, I mean, more recently they said they're, they're looking at making more food that is local because um, they've always been pretty sustainable. And, I mean, that's sure. good. Yeah, and then as far as, I mean, they're the only ones that's really a national chain that's very sustainable. Um, probably the, 
one of the ones I can think that's probably maybe the closest to it is there's this burger chain called Elevation Burger, which serves grass-fed beef, and most of its ingredients are organic. Um, it's certainly not as large as Chipotle, but it is expanding. So that's probably oh, cool. that's probably the uh, the one I can think of, uh, you know, on a national level that comes even close to it. And um, you know, the other thing is, I don't know, if, have you seen these McDonald's commercials where they show the farmers for it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of it's a thing where I mean, you know, obviously that those McDonald's commercials are pure greenwashing, but it does also say how obviously they are worried about the, you know, they see that this is becoming a legitimate thing in in the industry of making these, you know, fast food restaurants that are more sustainable. So while it's a lie, it also shows how they obviously see that as that could become, you know, somewhat uh have somewhat of an impact on what they do and be somewhat of a, you know, hard, hard to see that, you know, like you said, we'll always have a need for, you know, for stuff that isn't local. So I don't think McDonald's is totally scared, but they are seeing what trends are coming. Um, another thing is we point out about how Chipotle tastes great because that was something even before reading The Omnivore's Dilemma that I just thought like Chipotle, their, their steak there was like some of the best I had and – and I know a lot of people say about the whole grass-fed beef, like I know people say, oh, it tastes different or it tastes gamey, which to me I haven't uh, – anything. I mean obviously I think it tastes better, but I guess I don't notice a huge difference as what people are saying. Um, I do notice a difference between, what, between the corn-fed beef and then the beef, which is at least mixed, like the, what's fed a mixture of, of grass and – and other grains, um, it's hard for me to tell between what's like, you know, send a combination of, of grass and the other things, you know, a little corn and soy in there, and then what's truly grass. So how about you? Have you noticed a huge difference in the taste? Um, yeah, I, I guess the uh, some of the best meat that I've ever had as far as beef is concerned is grass-based meat, and then some of the worst I've ever had has been grass grass-fed beef, and I think the main thing from the limited knowledge that I have talking to some farmers is a lot of it has to do with genetics, so if, uh, you know, if, a, if a, you have a steer that has been raised on corn and for generations to, to finish on corn and have marbling through corn, and then you suddenly finish it with grass, you're going to have a really tough, uh, untasty meat, and I think that's what happens sometimes with grass-finished beef. And then on the flip side, if you have uh, a breed that has been selected to finish on grass, then you have a wonderful, complete palate that is actually way better tasting than than anything I've ever had uh, before. So, you know, so it's definitely a, uh, I think it's a very complicated Taste also has to do with the region and the soils, and if there's certain grasses that have more minerals and other grasses that will also impact the taste. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, I found that uh, that it, it, it's variable, and and that with beef, it depends on the genetics and it depends on the farm. Interesting. Well, that that makes sense certainly, and I mean, I have to say that you know, if one is. Uh... Like if it's just uh, you know if it's finished on grass, but it was eating corn all 
all before that, I have to say, you know, is, is that really grass-fed beef then? Sure. So, you know, certainly, yeah. I mean, and right, and I hear some of these ones where they'll, like, they'll raise them mostly on grass, but then at the end they'll finish it on corn, which, you know, I think that one is better because they're at least not fed corn the whole life. But, I mean, still, it's um, in any way of trying to defend reasons, as some of these companies do, for why they finish it on corn. I, I can't uh, I can't accept any of those. Well, one thing is that I think a lot of people don't realize is that actually because cows have a rumen and they have five stomachs that are set up to digest grass, they actually, every single cow that, uh, every single cow or steer that, that you you would eat actually did spend its first five months out on grass. So my guess is that with those like McDonald's uh, farmer profiles that you've seen, that was probably a cow-calf operation. And so what happens is, you know, the mother gives birth uh, to calf, and then for the first five months that mother and calf are out on the pasture, and they're, you know, eating grass, and the calf is eating milk from its mother. And then after five months, the calf is healthy enough to be able to wean off of the mother and then is often shipped off to a feedlot or a feed yard where they're fed corn until they're about 18 months and then slaughtered. So it is actually the case that, that all, all cows and steers, they all eat grass for the first five months of their life. Uh, it's just a question of what happens after that. So a lot of times, you know, the larger integrators like McDonald's or whatever, they'll just show you that first five months of the story because it's very pastoral and, you know, beautiful, whereas the feedlots and feed yards are often, you know, it's it's there's not pasture and there's a very large number of animals, so they often leave that, that segment of the life uh, out of the story. Right. That's very much the thing about these McDonald's commercials because they call it, I think they call it like farm to fork or something like that. And, I mean, that's interesting to know that they do spend the first five months on the pastures, but certainly that's the big thing about really all of these McDonald's commercials because for the cows, they talk about, right, they don't talk about the whole feedlot process. And, I mean, they also do unlike for the potatoes. And, sure, they show up the potatoes in the field, but they don't talk about when, then where they're shipped to because I think they have like five different regional uh, operations where the potatoes are shipped and all the all these ingredients that are added potatoes. They also don't bring up how these potatoes are not organic and potatoes, that's one of the dirty dozen that you should not eat organic and similarly with their commercials for lettuce. So, I mean, that's a big thing is these McDonald's commercials leave a part out because sure, we all know that you know, cows, they are born on a farm and and that, but certainly there is a part that, that's left out. Um, do you have any favorite types of grass-fed beef that you like? Well, uh, I guess the best that I ever had was was at Skagit River Ranch, which is uh, which is in upstate Washington, about near the Canadian border, uh, and it's George and Iko Vokovich. They have the farm is on a floodplain, and so the grass is just lush, and there's all these minerals in the soil. And one of the benefits of doing these shoots with farmers across the country is I often get treated to a meal or, nice. or so, and, you know. And so they they pulled out some steaks and put them on the grill, and it was 
by far the best the best meat I've ever had in my life. And uh, you know, so again, that sort of gets back to the to the various. They were very particular about the genetics that they use, and they happened to be in a place that had really wonderful soils for minerals. And so that was incredible. Uh, that was the best the best beef that I've ever had for sure. Another thing I've heard about grass-fed beef, because like you, I've had certainly some good and some bad grass-fed beef. Um, you know, a lot of it I've just, uh, you know, a lot of it I've been eating at restaurants, only a little I've cooked myself. But um, the um, there's this grocery store in Los Angeles called the Figaro Produce, and I recently talked to the owner of it, Luis, who I'm looking at hopefully having on my show. And when I bought it, he was actually explaining to me, he says, have you cooked grass-fed beef before? And... He explained to me how actually the thing with grass-fed beef is it's cooked differently than regular meat. That He said the main thing is that you have to cook it at a lower temperature. And as I've been to a lot of these grass-fed beef restaurants in L.A., and a lot of them do a pretty good job, but I've had some where it just feels yeah, like it was too cooked, like even when I asked for it, like medium rare. Um, and so I think that's part of the thing also is I think some of these places – they don't know how to cook it. That's uh, that's another issue. Is that you know, as this becomes sure. more more the norm, I think you know we will need to be having like cooking classes and learning that it cooks a different way. And so maybe that's uh, some reasons of uh, people's opinion of why they don't like grass fed beef as much um, is maybe it was cooked wrong when they had it. Sure. Um, yeah. Have you had any experience with that as far as hearing about like cooking grass fed beef a certain way? Um, I haven't. I, I actually I haven't heard that before, uh, but I'm sure that that, that makes sense. And and uh, you know I, I have we did talk to a number of chefs when we were d- doing the filming of American Meat, and we actually have a, a few chefs are in the film. Uh, one of them is Dan Barber, who is a chef out at Blue Hill in uh, in New York, and then there is another chef by the name of Mark Newsom. He's a chef at the Joshua Wilton House in Virginia, and uh, you know they, they. One of the things that is so amazing about this whole movement is that it is driven by really good food, and so it's something that a lot of people, regardless of what your political beliefs are, you know, what, whatever it is, people can come around and join together at a table and eat eat good food, and that's that's a pretty that's a pretty large everybody eats and everybody you know enjoys a great meal so we have something that is starting to take root and starting to really spread spread around with a lot of different people and i think it's because it's a celebration of our food and you know chefs are finding more and more that if they source their food locally it's fresher it tastes really good and you know they're starting to understand that their customers really enjoy to know the farmer's story and the story of their food because you know that that's something that that we haven't really been exposed to for a long time. So uh, it's an exciting time, and you know there's a lot of wonderful thing ha- things happening at restaurants all across the country and at farmers markets all across the country, and uh, it's just an exciting time to be to be a part of eating right now. Right. And I know in your film you also talk about not just about the beef but also other animals on farms such as pigs and chickens. And do sim- is it similar um, situations kind of of how 
like pigs and chickens are raised on organic farms. Is that pretty similar to the cows? Um, pigs and chickens are a little different because they also eat corn. Uh, they, they still have feed, uh, even on like Joel Salton's farm or any, any grass-based farm that, that raises pigs and chickens. They still feed them corn uh, to get them up to weight, whereas with the grass-fed beef, they actually don't feed them corn. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's still... The animals are still outside, and you know they're still uh, getting to express a lot of their physiological distinctiveness. Like the chickens are rooting around and getting insects and beetle grubs out of their the grass, and the, the pigs are using their snout to build nests with their sows or you know whatever it is. So there's a lot of uh, cool things about the animals being outside. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 definitely, there's a lot of similarities uh, with the different types of production. Um, and the, with each production, chicken, pork, and uh, beef, there are also different types of nuances and things that, that have to be done differently to sort of match the life cycles of those different animals. Right, and I've known that about pigs that they can eat corn because pigs have uh, certainly uh, don't have a limited diet as some of these other animals that we eat. But now, so now chickens, they can eat corn by nature. Well, I mean, yeah, they definitely eat a lot of corn. Uh, now, I mean, naturally, you know, I don't know if pigs or chickens would eat corn, like, but it helps them get fat faster. You know, so. You know, that's something that a lot of these, even the grass-based farms, they're, I mean, every different type of farm needs to be profitable. And so, you know, those chickens and pigs, they, they get up to weight faster by getting fed corn. And so most of the feed for those chickens and pigs that are on polyface or on any, any grass-based farm, the chickens and pigs are eating a lot of corn. Uh, it's probably like 90 or 95% of their diet. Uh, but still, it saves, they do save some money because they eat, some pigs will actually eat grass, some pigs will root around and eat acorns and things like that. Uh, and then chickens will eat insects and beetle grubs and all kinds of things. So they are saving some money on inputs. But with as far as chicken and, and hog production, there is no model out there that doesn't have, you know, a lot of corn uh, where the animals are eating a lot of corn. That's interesting. I can, that's something I didn't know because I've certainly heard, you know, the whole pastured chickens, of course. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not eating corn. I mean, the pastures can just refer to um, to being out on open pastures. Um, I thought I had heard something that it's best for uh, for chickens to eat mostly grass. I, I could be wrong about that. I know also Joel Saladin has explained about the issue of his uh, that he does feed the chickens some corn is that it it is a lot because of um, it does have to do somewhat with demand and that he's he certainly has explained that um, that's that certainly that's an, another topic because I think a lot of it has always been on you know the beef that's the one we've looked at getting the most sustainable maybe because uh, beef is uh, well yeah because it is in, in factory farming of all of them beef is the worst so it makes sense that we've 
focus the effort on making that one first the most sustainable. And yeah, I mean, pigs, because uh, I know another thing with pigs is, um, I know, I, I know some farms now they do like, um, like in Nevada, um, I mean, pigs can eat like stuff that we throw out. They can eat like stuff that was thrown out of like a buffet. So, I mean, we can prevent like food waste from, uh, from being thrown out by giving that to pigs is something that I've seen that I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, pigs can eat a lot of stuff, uh, and so a lot of farmers that I've talked to, you know, they'll get food scraps from restaurants and feed those to pigs, and so that's, you know, I don't know what percentage, I'm sure there are some farms that have gotten that percentage of corn down to, who knows, maybe 75%, you know, or maybe it's only even 50%. I don't know. I'd have to do some research and see what the the best models out there for for reducing the amount of corn consumption, but uh, it is still, uh, that's definitely still the majority of their feed is for pigs and chickens for every different type of farm that I've been to is is corn uh, or feed. You know, sometimes that means it's oats or soy or whatever it is. Uh, so that's definitely uh, one major input that is is a reality for for meat production today currently that's interesting i don't know i wonder if um i know there's an, a watchdog organization called cornucopia that monitors a lot of the uh the egg farms and that and i wonder if i wonder if that's something that they would know as far as uh what's given uh what's given grass it looks like from their website it looks like it doesn't say what uh well it can say it has a thing there saying like feed um any produced on farm so They'll say, like, if they require nutrition from pasture. Um, so just, like, I'm looking at one. One of the best ones in California is the Vital Farm Eggs, and it says their feed. It says hens acquire some nutrition from pasture. And, I mean, you know, this is one which is they give it five eggs. That's its rating. Um, yeah, so, you know, this is one that's supposed to be the best, and they're saying even there that obviously not all of its uh, nutrition is from pasture. Some of it's from corn. So... Obviously, that's uh, that's something which, I mean, it sounds like they're working on changing, but yeah, and I think, you know, certainly because chickens are more sustainable, that's probably a reason that they they raise more chickens. So maybe it's it's easier to uh, to make beef all grass-fed because we're told to uh, to eat less uh, beef because it's the, you know, uses the most resources of any meat. So with chickens, maybe because just in general chickens is more more sustainable that by kind of having that a combination of giving it some grass and some food from outside kind of makes it more balanced whereas it's uh it's better to just give cows all grass yeah i mean you know cows have a rumen and so they they really biologically they're not supposed to eat anything other than grass uh, and so, you know, chickens and pigs, they don't have a room and they have, pigs especially have a digestive system that's closer to what ours is. And so obviously it's it's biologically healthy for pigs and chickens to be eating corn, whereas it's biologically, I guess, inappropriate for cows to be eating corn. Uh, you know, it's sort of like... The metaphor I hear is, is it's like if humans only ate ice cream, that's kind of what it's like with cows eating corn. Uh, so, you know, it's, that's a reason that they they will sometimes get sick 
Uh, and so, yeah, finishing on grass takes longer, uh, which means that they have to, the farmers take, a, it's a longer time for return on investment, which is why people started feeding corn. Um, and then it also makes it a little bit harder for them to marble that, unless you have really good genetics, it's harder to get that marbled fat on the, the grass-finished uh, beef. So, you know, there's a lot of economic advantages and some people would argue taste advantages to feeding cattle corn, but I think there's a huge movement towards grass-finished beef and, and that will become a larger percentage of the market in the next you know, decade. Right. Well, that's certainly an interesting topic. Um, this is kind of a new thing for me to explore is to find out specifically because um, I've learned so much of, you know, what cows have been eaten by nature. But I don't think there has been a lot of talk of chickens or certainly not as much. So this is certainly something that I, I love to explore f- further on the show and the blog. I looked up actually just the uh, information for another one, which is um, Organic Pastures. This is a farm and they have both chicken and cows there. And it says on their thing, the uh, the pasture for the chickens is shared with the dairy. Um doesn't say, you know, any information about any outside feed. I wonder also if, as far as how much grass they get versus corn. I mean, I wonder if that has anything to do with, like, the uh, the color of the yolk because, I mean, the chicken yolks should be orange and, you know, a lot of these factory farm ones, they're very yellow. So, and the ones which are organic, which are pasture-based, I mean, even those um, – they're fed some corn. You certainly see a darker yellow and an orange color. And I wonder, does the does the corn at all affect the color? That would be an interesting thing to explore. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the cool thing about the movement being in its beginning stages is, you know, people we're all learning things every day, and there's a lot of discovery that happens, and you know, there's always some new great distribution model, some new great way of raising animals and, and feeding animals that there's a lot of innovation happening all the time because we're at the very beginning stages of this movement and uh, it's exciting because there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of knowledge that's being shared. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, no one has all the answers now of what, you know, what's the best way to raise the, raise the animals, what is the most sustainable, that we are still learning from it and, you know, certainly with me, I mean, there's things that I was doing just a few years ago as far as it, Diet-wise, then I'm like, wow, uh, I did that even, you know, even at the start of, uh, you know, my change. Um, so that is a thing. And that's kind of, I think, the thing about being environmental is just you're always learning and you always realize that you can do it better. Um, or as, as your website says, your organization, leave it better, um, which actually I'd like for you to explain a little about that because I know that certainly deals somewhat with, uh, you know, the areas we're talking about. And I know that goes into other areas of helping the environment. So Explain for our listeners a little what Leave It Better is about. Yeah, uh, Leave It Better is a uh, website where you can go and watch videos about people who are doing things to have a positive impact on the environment. Uh, We also have an educational program that puts gardens into schools and teaches kids how to compost, and then they use that compost to grow their own food. Uh, And so... It's just been wonderful. Uh, we've, we're all about sharing positive solutions uh, about what we can all do to have an impact on agriculture and on our environment and ways that we can 
reshape the way that we do things to have a more healthy environment. Right. I really love how you focus on very much on the positive solutions because as your documentary American Meat is is built, it's a solutions oriented documentary and so I love that and also I love how you say that you didn't need to do any like of the undercover camera work. And do you think that kind of uh puts your documentary very much in a unique position because I know a lot of these other ones they're all about the undercover camera work from, you know, even the ones which although they are still supportive of sustainable meat, ones like Food Inc. or Fresh. I mean, and then you got the ones which are pretty much, you know, trying to get everyone to go vegan. Those ones like, um, was it, Species. Um, do you think that that offers a unique position for your documentary that others don't have? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we're probably unique in the, in the sense that we were able to get access to all different types of production regarding to meat. Uh, you know, so we filmed in the large uh, chicken and hog and cattle uh, barns. Uh, well, there's chicken and hog barns, and then we filmed on the cattle feed yards. And we got access to those places, and you're actually able to hear from the farmers that live there and work there. And I think what most people are surprised about is, you know, that these are really good people, and they're just doing what they need to do to make a living. And uh, I think it helps bring people together. You know, some of those other documentaries that you mentioned, uh, you know, those filmmakers did a wonderful job, and, uh, you know, they their stories took them on a different path, uh, one that was more about sort of ringing an alarm bell uh, for, to wake people up, and, you know, our film took us on a different path that uh, sort of one that, that is really aiming to bring people uh, together and sit down at a table and have a conversation and and you need every different type of uh, every different type of film in this process of changing things you need films that are gonna sort of shock people and 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 make people take action and you also need films that are gonna bring people together and have people sit down at a table and talk uh, so you know I, I do think our film is unique in that sense that we did we did get that access and we do we do talk to farmers of every different type and we did see the different production models uh, and that's been a wonderful thing. Uh, we, we've been able to have a lot of screenings where the panel will have commodity hog farmers and grass-based uh, vegetable farmers or grass-based beef farmers that are sitting on the same panel and they'll agree on a lot of things and maybe there'll be things they'll disagree on but we can have a constructive conversation that will help reshape the way that that they personally farm. Right. I agree that um, certainly that's been, I think, um, a thing about all – there's been certainly a lot of food documentaries, and all the ones I've seen are well done. And it really is a thing that, you know, you hear so many of these ones, but really everyone that I've seen really has found a way to have a unique point, and I haven't felt like any two have been alike, that there are so many different – angles you can take in the food industry that I think that's great. Um, also related with these undercover videos, what's your thought on some of these states doing these ag-gag bills? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I need to do a little more research because I was just in Iowa and there was a screening we had where somebody brought that up and it was one of these panels I just mentioned where we had conventional farmers and we had uh, you know, grass-based 
farmers on the same panel, and an audience member made a made a point about the fact that the 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 law, I believe, had just passed in Iowa the day we had that screening, and so you know I I didn't know what the law was, and so I asked the people in the room what it was, and it actually a year ago it was supposed to, the the one that you would uh, you would get a uh, a felony conviction if you just took a picture from the road, and that one didn't pass, and that was all this outrage. And now the one, the ag-gag rule that was explained to me, and again, I may not have the details right on this, uh, but it explained to me a felony conviction if you were falsely representing who you are by using a fake ID and then using that imagery to, uh, you know, to sort of show things that would be shocking to the public. Now, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it should be a felony to to do that. I don't think it should be legal to misrepresent by showing fake ID and to do these types of things. I don't think that should be legal by any stretch. I mean, if I, if I was operate, I operate a business. If someone were to like become a employee of of my company and and to give me a false identification and then to write a slanderous article about what we were doing, or maybe not slanderous, but something malicious about, you know, what we were doing, I don't think that should be legal. Um, so I don't know. I think it's a a gray area. I certainly don't think that there should be any type of, it should not be illegal to take a picture of a farm from a public road. That's ridiculous. I think anyone in the public would agree with that. Uh, but I do think it's a, once you start falsely representing who you are and, and you know, getting into these places, that gets into a bit more of a legal gray area that I'm not, I'm not so sure what the what it should be. Um, I mean, what I can say and what I said that, that day in the panel discussion is I don't think it's a good idea for for conventional agriculture to be so aggressively anti-camera because that just scares people. <laughs> you know, if they see it's working against them the more they do that because if they, if they're constantly like, uh, you know, you can't have any cameras in here and all that, then people get suspicious like what's going on in there. Why don't we want to see that? And then, then you'll actually draw more attention to it. So it's not a very smart play on their, their part to try to get these ag gag laws because it only brings more press to the issues that they don't want press brought to. Um, you know, as far as, uh, what they, you know, what will happen with it? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that they. I just saw a series of videos that Monsanto produced. That they're similar to the McDonald's one, where they're starting to, you know, carefully construct videos about farm families, and uh, you know, I think that they're starting to realize that people would rather see video with the farmers in it than you know hidden camera video. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's kind of. I think you're right when you mentioned that, that the big players are starting to realize that something's happening here and they're trying to figure out ways they can be a part of it. Um, you know, but they're, they're also like kind of schizophrenic because they're also going after these ag gag laws, uh, you know, which are sending a totally different message to the public. And then, you know, on top of that, they're, 
they're then saying, well, come on in. Here's these videos of our farmers. So, you know, which one is it? And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. We're sort of, there's, whenever change happens, uh, there's always a lot of, a lot of, uh, drama and a lot of, a lot of hypocrisy. And, and so we're sort of at that first moment of change. And, and I think you're going to see a lot of, of conflicting messages and a lot of failures. And it's an interesting moment. Agreed. I mean, I think, yeah, cause that's a big part of this ag ag bill is that, um, it was a thing about people like lying about, uh, their background in order to get into the jobs. And it's a thing of certainly I don't support what goes on these factory farms, but there's something strange about, you know, you know, being opposed to a bill that's basically, um, about, you know, getting people not to, uh, to lie and to, to falsify documents that, when people are against that just because uh just because you know they want the outcome of the things to be exposed i, I don't think that it's almost saying a message like okay it's it's okay to lie about about these and so yeah there is a lot of gray area um but then there is also a thing that you know these bills it shows just how reactionary these industrial farms are that they want it all protected and yeah it doesn't give a good image for them i'm sort of the whole battle between it i'm not sure if it gives uh good message kind of for either side is some ways uh, I think comes out. It's kind of fighting over it back and forth that, you know, lying about your background to get in. And then the, uh, these, you know, farms taking, uh, you know, aggressive steps for it. Um, it's just not a, not a positive uh, solution that either sides are, are taking. Um, anyway, I want to thank you. You've been a great guest. So, but before you go, can you please tell everyone, uh, you know, where we can find, leave it better. And, uh, Give the address for that. Give um, address for American Meat, and let people know how they can see a screening of it. Sure. Yeah, we're uh, we've got our nonprofit organization, and the website I mentioned earlier is leaveitbetter.com, uh, and that's where you can go to watch videos of people doing things to have a positive impact on the environment. Uh, and then for the film, uh, which is the film is called American Meat. And uh, the website for that is AmericanMeatFilm.com. And uh, if you go to that website, you'll see all of our screenings. You'll see a lot of uh, conversation of some of the issues we discussed. Uh, and you also meet some of the farmers that are in the film. Uh, so, yeah, as far as uh, being able to see the film, we're, if you're interested in having a screening, please contact us through the website and uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and start the process of setting that up. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of screenings already that are happening. So if there's one near you, then you can check out the film there. And then we're also selling uh, community screening licenses where you can purchase a copy uh, and then host a screening for uh, 50 people or hundred people or, or over 200 people. And there's different uh, costs for that, different license amounts. Um, and then we will eventually, in the next couple of months, be releasing the DVD for personal use. And then probably the very last thing will be on iTunes and Netflix, things like that. So, uh, so yeah. And uh, thanks so much, Aaron. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, we'd love to have you again uh, when we, uh, you know, when the film starts to screen in California. So, thank you for your time. All right, now I got to go to our desserts. Okay, so for this weekend, there is the Natural Product Expo at the Anaheim Convention Center, a great way to see 
and learn about different uh, products from food to cosmetics and cleaning products. This will be all there at the Anaheim Convention Center Saturday and Sunday. On Monday, the Haven Gastropub and Brewery in Pasadena is having a event Fight Fagra. This is, will benefit the Coalition for Humane and Ethical Farming Standards. That's chefs, and this is an organization that wants to reverse the ban on foie gras, so they will have all types of foie gras meals there. Also, you should take the time to check out Lindy and Grundy in the West Hollywood Fairfax area. They were named Bon Appetit's Best Artisanal Bush Butchers, so hope you can check that out. Um, and anyway, that is it for today, and I hope to uh, see you next week, and I will see you at the expo this weekend.